So trust no one becomes our fourth watchword for this week. Uh, We said that there were three great battlegrounds in English religious history. The battleground of authority, who would have it and how much would they have. The battleground of worship, meaning... Is it not? Just want to make sure it wraps. Uh, the, the battleground of worship. How should we worship God and according to what rule? And then finally, the battleground of doctrine. What would be the doctrinal authority? What would be the doctrine that we embrace? And we're going to see this continuing this week, all three of these things. In fact, uh, in fact, not only are they going to continue, but this, these three battlegrounds are going to intensify. And the bloodshed is going to um, exponentially multiply. Uh, based around these three battlegrounds. Now, we have to, just to, to remind ourselves of where we were last week, uh, Elizabeth had just died, and James, so the end of the Tudor monarchy, and James VI of Scotland, James Stuart, had become James I of the King of England, and this was in 1603. Now, this it's getting to the point where we practically have to have a scorecard to understand what's going on and in order to, to see the shifting alliances. So let's just talk about the religious alliances or religious positions that you can hold at this time. You have basically within the Anglican Church or the English State Church and outside of it. Within the Anglican Church, you could potentially be one of three groups. You could be what we're going to call a crypto-Catholic. By that, you couldn't be an open Roman Catholic because there were laws against being an open Roman Catholic and, and as we saw, bad things would happen to you. So you could be within the Anglican Church and you could be a crypto-Catholic. And this wasn't merely um, the parishioners or the people attending church. This went all the way up to the, to the priests and the bishops. You could be a person who favored the status quo You'll remember that at this point, the status quo established by Elizabeth was that there would be basically reformed doctrine, but Catholic worship practices and hierarchy within the church. Or you could be part of this emerging group, which is sometimes called the dissenters because they dissented from the status quo, sometimes called nonconformists because they would not conform with the uh, the requirements or the strictures about worship that uh, the church was passing out at this time or called a Puritan, primarily because they wanted to purify the worship and the um, uh, government of the Church of England. Now, outside the Anglican Church, we saw it was a very dangerous place to be. Outside the Anglican Church, you could be one of these people called a separatist. We saw that the, some were called Brownists or Barrowists after the various founders of congregations who generally had to flee the country or, or die. Um, you, could, you could be an Anabaptist. Um, all of these people by this point were in hiding, secret. You didn't have open separatist congregations because you would get killed. So you could be outside the Anglican Church, you could be a separatist, or you could be in one of the many sects or cults, and we'll go into some of these next week. These were also exploding at this time, and I mean just about the most bizarre things imaginable. Uh, Bizarre religious practices and beliefs were beginning to take off here in the early part of the 1600s. 
And many of them shared Baptist or Anabaptist views of baptism, but that's about where it stopped. The separatists, of course, held, if you'll remember, that they did not want a state church, uh, that there should be freely gathered congregations of believers in Christ, which was a shocking, revolutionary idea that meant that you should be killed rather than be allowed to hold that view. And in fact, we saw that even possessing literature advocating such views could get you the death penalty. Now then, within the university system, there was a, of primarily Oxford and Cambridge, there was a division going on. Oxford was coming to represent this status quo group right here. Cambridge had been taken over by Puritans. And we had a fellow by the name of William Ames who eventually had to flee to Holland, like everyone else <laughs> last week fled to Holland. So we had a division within the university system, Cambridge turning out Puritan ministers, Oxford turning out ministers that tended to embrace the status quo, or worse, uh, ministers who actually opposed the, pro the, the reform doctrines of the Church of England represented by the 39 Articles and were in fact veering towards Arminianism, free will, or outright uh, Catholic doctrine. Then within society, there were divisions emerging. There was the nobility and the ecclesiastical hierarchy, the men of wealth, the men of property. These people tended to be royalists and, and part of this status quo. There was the beginnings of the, what we call today the middle class, gentry, merchants, as trade was beginning to expand, uh, craftsmen and artisans. These people tended to be part of the Puritan movement. Then there was an underclass of society. Uh, there was the underclass, uh, the rural underclass, if you will, which is what we like to call peasants. They tended to support the king and the Anglican church. Then there was the urban underclass of, of poor people, and we'll discuss how they got there. They tended to be falling more into this group over here, separatists uh, or even sectarian or cult-like movements. So all divisions throughout society, uh, but still a semblance of order since this was the only thing that was legal, this status quo. So Elizabeth dies James is crowned in 1603, and the Black Death hits London and kills 33,000 people in one year. Uh, Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. And that was perhaps a description of the despair that many people felt at that time with death all around them. Now let's talk about James I. Last week we organized it, our, our discussion around the monarchs of England, even though, as we said, they were completely unworthy of having anything organized around them. But they're useful, and we're going to organize it around two monarchs today, James I and Charles I, and we're going to bring in their two most important advisors both of whom virtually were, were almost like co-kings. James I, interesting character. James I, we said, had been the king of Scotland. Uh, he was the, the, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who, as you recall, had been put to death for plotting too many times to overthrow Elizabeth. And James was raised by Scottish Reformed Presbyterian tutors. Hardcore Presbyterians. I mean, you don't get any more hardcore than these guys. He might as well have had John Knox raising him. 
He learned to love theological debate, like a good Presbyterian. But he learned to hate Presbyterianism. Because the one thing about Presbyterians is they were people who believed uh, that they, they were people of conscience. They were people who followed God first. And this was extremely offensive to James's theory of monarchy. Because James became an advocate, a strong advocate and believer in the divine right of kings. And he began to realize very quickly that Presbyterian government would interfere with the divine right of kings. So he became a believer in Episcopal, the, the Episcopal hierarchy, the kind of system used in the Church of England, uh, as, a, as a necessary accompaniment of the monarchy. And so this became the catchphrase for the next two monarchs, actually the next four monarchs, no bishop, no king. This was completely ingrained in their thought pattern. No bishop, no king. Um, James was an author and a scholar, um, and he, even, he, he wrote a book called The True Law of Free Monarchy. And the idea of it goes something like this. This is not actually a quote from his book, but from another tract that, that really will give you the, the sense of this view. We believe and maintain that kings derive their titles not from the people, but from God, and that to him only they are accountable, that it does not belong to subjects either to create or to censure, but only to honor and obey their sovereign, who comes to be their sovereign by a fundamental hereditary right of succession, which no religion, no law, no fault or forfeiture can alter or diminish." There is no higher view of monarchy than what James embraced. Absolute divine right of kings. And uh, he, he learned pretty early on that, that Presbyterians expected something of their king, and if they didn't get it, they were apt to become uppity. Uppity in religious circles and uppity in political circles, and in certain cases might even advocate severe measures to be used against a king who would not follow uh, uh, the word of God. And uh, so James didn't like that. He liked the English system in which the king was the head of state and the head of the church. Now, James had been raised by Reformed tutors, very educated. Um, loved theological debate, and also a very personally, morally bankrupt individual. Words fail me to describe the depravity which went on in the court of James I. It's almost legendary in nature. James himself was bisexual, uh, that may be even a generous uh, description of his sexual preferences and probably would fall into a category that today we call a pedophile. He was totally morally bankrupt. His court was extravagant. He, in essence, uh, some of you have probably seen movies or such like things about the, the great courts of Louis XIII and XIV and the Sun King and so forth in, in France and the extravagance of the court. And this was the mentality that James had, very much a French mentality of monarchy. Uh, absolute king, answerable to no one. And he was an extremely morally corrupt individual. 
He also was obsessed, as you've seen already, with his own power. So he tended to oppose three things. He certainly opposed any kind of democracy, including parliament. He opposed, however, Rome as well. Because remember, in the Roman system, the monarch was dependent on the pope and subject to the pope. And he didn't want any part of that. He didn't want to be subject to any kind of religious structure, whether it was the pope or Presbyterianism or the Church of England, the Archbishop of Canterbury, anybody. James was going to be his own man. So James takes over in 1603. And immediately a group of Puritans within the Anglican Church presents him, they're very hopeful because they know he's been raised by Scottish Reformed tutors. Nobody knows much about James at this point. This is Scotland, nobody pays attention to Scotland. So he becomes king, and the Puritans give him what's called the millinery petition. Millinery because they were going to have a thousand uh, ministers sign it, kind of like the Million Man March or something like that. I don't think they quite got a thousand, kind of like the Million Man March. And anyway, the millinery petition was a very mild document in which they asked for certain concessions which would enable Puritans, moderate Puritans, to be happy within the Church of England. They asked for all of the popish ceremonies to be taken away. Uh, they asked for qualifications to be implemented for becoming a minister of the Word of God because there were none, essentially. Uh, parishes were, were handed out to a large degree, to political favorites or family friends or sons. or you know, If you had a grandson that needed a career, you could check it out with the archbishop and get him a place in there. Completely unqualified ministry. Uh, atheist ministers, all kinds of, of, of people in the ministry. And they asked for, a for some kind of testing that people would actually be qualified ministers of the Word of God. They wanted a reform in church discipline so that excommunication took place for the right reasons and took place, in some cases, took place for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. And they also wanted the elimination of a practice where people could hold multiple offices. What would happen is a guy would move up through the ranks. He would start as a priest of some parish down here, and he'd get to be a bishop, and then he'd get to be an archdeacon. And he would continue to hold all of these offices and collect money for them at one time, even though he might never ever show up as a parish priest anymore. But the money, he would, he, would, he, would, he would be like stacking your income. He would get all the money for all of his offices. And it was crippling the ability of there even to be ministers at the local level as these guys would advance and, and keep the funds. They wanted an end to that. Very mild petition. And so James has a conference. He call, it's called the Hampton Court Conference. And he brought in Puritan uh, bishops and Anglican bishops, again, Puritan moderates, really, uh, to discuss the millinery petition. The real purpose of the Hampton Court Conference was for James to show off his theological knowledge and to insult all of the Puritan ministers. That's the only reason he had him come. He had him come there. He basically mocked them, uh, uh, tried to refute their positions, uh, totally sided with the, with the status quo bishops, and would give them no, uh, there, would be, there would be no um, concessions at all except one. This is 1604. He gives them one concession. The Puritan minister said, look, we're using this prayer book, this, this book of common prayer, and it's got these English Bible translations in it that are atrocious. They're completely atrocious. They're like 100 years old. Uh, uh, the Bishop's Bible. We really need another English translation. 
let's use the Geneva Bible, they said. The Geneva Bible was, a, was an English translation done by those guys who had run away from, uh, from Bloody Mary and were hiding in Geneva, the English church there. You remember from last week. They'd done this Bible. They said, we want to use the Geneva Bible in the Book of Common Prayer. Well, James was, wouldn't go for the Geneva Bible because the Geneva Bible had a huge fault. It had reformed Protestant marginal notes, including lots of reformed Protestant marginal notes that questioned the divine right of kings. So he was not about to let them use the Geneva Bible. So he said, I tell you what, we won't use the Geneva Bible, but we'll have a new Bible translation. We'll have a new Bible translation commissioned in 1604, eventually came out in 1611, and it is, of course, the King James Version and the authorized version of the Bible. So that was his one concession. And the only reason he gave that concession was because he wanted to get rid of the Geneva Bible because he didn't like the fact that it had marginal notes about the divine right of kings. So pretty much blows off the millenary petition, uh, mocks these Puritans at the Hampton Court Conference and comes out. Remember we talked last week about these acts of uniformity everybody keeps passing. Every time they become king, they, they put the thumb screws down on the church, make everybody get with the program. So he passes an act of uniformity himself. It's called the Canon of 1604. And, and, and uh, was going to essentially force all of the parishes to comply with the Book of Common Prayer, the ceremonies, the popish ceremonies, the whole nine yards. No getting out of it. And in fact, if you were a minister, you had to, you had to take an oath upholding the canon of 1604. And what that meant was that about 200 Puritan ministers lost their churches. They weren't going to take it. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't swear it. And so they were out on the street, deprived of their congregations. He, he, he instituted a number of other reforms to try to crack down on the Puritan movement within the Church of England. One of them was a requirement that you had to attend your local parish church. This is one way people get around it. They know there'd be a Puritan, it'd be like if there was a Puritan minister over in Van Alstine, and instead of going to Tom Bean, where maybe there'd be like some crypto-Catholic minister... You know, maybe you were supposed to go to Tom Bean. You just head over to Van Alstine. Mm-mm, not anymore. Required attendance at your local parish. And Saints Days, too. And there was another thing the Puritans used to do. They used to go from one church to another because they would stagger the services. Everybody knew where the Puritan churches were. So you'd start out at 1 at 8 a.m. You'd have a service there. You'd, get, you'd walk, walk across town to another one about noon have service there, go over for an evening lecture at another place about 4 o'clock, this kind of a deal. And they called this gadding. This was gadding. And so uh, King James wanted to put a stop to the Puritans gadding about. And so uh, he said, no more of that. You go to your church, your church only, and we're getting rid of all these Puritan ministers. We've had enough. Uh, you're going to get with the program. So he, start, he begins to institute very severe reforms on the church. Well, what's happening politically? Politically, same year, 1604, guy's hardly been a year in office, and somebody tries to kill him. In fact, somebody tries to kill him and the entire parliament. Uh, there was a group of Roman Catholic conspirators who had a plan. They had enough of these severe restrictions on Roman Catholicism. They had enough, in fact, of Protestantism of any kind. And they were going to bring Roman Catholicism back 
to, to England. They were going to wipe out Parliament and the king all in one fell swoop. And in 16, uh, 1604, they had a plot. The day Parliament opened, they had rented a uh, storage room underneath Parliament. And they had filled it with 36 barrels of gunpowder, which is a lot of gunpowder. And they'd hidden it with firewood and iron bars and such like things. And there was a guy named Guy Fawkes. And Guy Fawkes was going to go in and light it up on the opening of Parliament. And they were going to wipe out James and the whole Parliament. And this would have been something like what we experienced on September 11th. An incredible attack on the nation of England. I mean, nothing like this ever done before or since, for that matter. Well, there was a group of conspirators, including uh, some Jesuit priests who were hiding in the country and uh, some other folks. Well, one guy is always one guy. There's always one guy who ruins a good plan. <laughs> one guy had a brother-in-law who was a member of Parliament. And he got to feeling bad about how he was going to blow up his brother-in-law. So he sent him an anonymous letter telling him, look, don't come on that day. Don't come. Well, brother-in-law passes the letter around, an investigation starts, they find this gunpowder underneath uh, Parliament, and so they lay in wait, Guy Fawkes shows up, they nab him, uh, they catch pretty much all the conspirators who are hung, or some of them make it out of the country and they're exiled. Most of them are, 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 are executed. And to this day, in Northern Ireland, they still burn Guy Fawkes in effigy because it's a big Protestant thing on Guy Fawkes Day. So, so we had the gunpowder plot. So, you know, like I said, James is not really all that keen on Rome. I mean, he's got Rome trying to kill him. He's not that keen on the Puritans because he's got the Puritans who want to subject him to the law of God. And that's not going to work. And now, a couple years later, he's got the common people uh, trying to do something. We have a little event called Captain Pouch's, <laughs> Captain Pouch's Uprising, or Captain Pouch's Revolt. Uh, you remember I said at the beginning that, that there were... Uh, peasants and, and, and poor people were beginning to uh, become a serious problem uh, within London in particular. Here's what was happening. Uh, most of the land in England was owned by noblemen. And they had had kind of a feudal system. It wasn't feudal anymore in the sense that they didn't own the, the peasants that worked on it. Uh, but it was what they called a manorial system where you had manors. And you were, you, people like you and me, we'd be a, we'd be a peasant and we, well, we, we didn't have any property of our own. We would pay the lord of the manor, you know, baron this or lord that, we, had, we would pay him a little bit of money, and we would get to live on his property, which of course was most of the country by the time you, you worked this out. We would get to live on his property, grow our crops, have our happy little house, live our little peasant life, and, and, uh, and he wouldn't interfere with us too much. Okay. Well, here's what happened. As trade began to develop here in the, early seven, in the early 1600s, this became not so profitable of arrangement. Here's what I could do if I'm Lord Somebody. I could take my property and I could start converting it into uh, sheep pastures. And I could export wool and make lots and lots of money. Or I could start growing crops in a very intensive fashion 
and make lots and lots of money. So I would have this huge piece of property and that these little peasants were living on here, and there'd be common pieces that everybody could run their cow on, and, and then there'd be little crops where I had my crops. What I could do is I could take this whole property and fence it off and make lots of money for me. Well, I got a problem here. I got these people living on it. So what do I do? Well, I've got contracts with them that says you've got to pay this much. Guess what? You're a day late with your payment. Get off of my property. You can't live here anymore. House is gone. Property's gone. Nothing. You know what you got? You got nowhere. You can't go anywhere. So you go to the city. You go to London, big city, and you become an extremely poor person, basically living on the streets. This was going on all over the country, and it was getting worse and worse. As, actually, it would get worse and worse as the century got along. Well, what's happening? You've got all of these peasants who are ending up in the city with no way to make any money, no way to survive, no way to live. And uh, they finally start staging demonstrations. You have Captain Pouch's revolt. Now, this wasn't going to overthrow the monarchy. It wasn't big enough yet. It wasn't huge. But it's symptomatic of something. It's symptomatic of lots of people in the city who are getting dissatisfied with the king and with the rich people and who are willing to take some pretty serious action to do something about it because it's being made where they can't even survive anymore because this guy wants to make more money and because he can. So you've got Captain Pouch's revolt. Then, if that wasn't enough for James, he's got the poor people turning on him. He's got the, uh, the Puritans inside the church giving him trouble. He's got the Roman Catholics trying to blow him up. Then you get Parliament. Very interesting and very annoying situation for a guy like James. In England, and I think this probably goes back perhaps as far as the Magna Carta, but certainly had developed since then, the monarch did not have control of the finances of the country. He was not an absolute monarch in that sense. He was dependent on parliament. So you have this arrangement where you had the king and you had parliament. Now the king had certain forms of income that belonged to him and him only. He could sell patents. Uh, he, could, he could engage in certain kinds of trade and commerce. He had his own lands that he could, he could sell things off of. But you really couldn't raise that much money doing that. You could probably raise enough money to keep yourself in pretty good style. But you couldn't, you couldn't engage in huge foreign adventures. Parliament controlled the primary purse strings. So every time you wanted to do something like go to war, you had to call Parliament into session. And you had to try to get them to vote you money. To give you, a, a, sometimes just a loan even like that was ever going to get paid back. But most of the time, just try to vote you some money. But Parliament, in the in-between times, would get irritated with stuff the king was doing. So he'd, try to, he'd want to go to war, he'd call Parliament, he'd say, I need some money. They'd say, we're not giving you any money unless you agree to do this and this and this and this and this. And he'd say, forget it, and he'd dissolve Parliament. And he'd go on another year and he'd try again. He'd call Parliament, here'd come Parliament back. And he'd say, look, I really need some money, it's getting bad. And they'd say, well, we'll give you some money, but you have to agree to what we want to do. And he'd give up and he'd dissolve Parliament. And this, we're going to see, goes on over and over again. So already, by, uh, in the first ten years of James' reign, by the time you reach, say, 1614, he's dissolved Parliament twice. He, he asks them for money, they get uppity, he <coughs> cancels Parliament, sends them all back home. Well, one, one interesting thing happens during this period of time. James was a, uh, this is kind of a funny story, 
in the, this goes in the file of some things never change. There's a couple of those this week. Some things never change. By this time, you have Virginia Colony, Jamestown. You all remember that. You've got the early Virginia Colonies. What are they growing in the Virginia Colony? They're growing tobacco. You got it. Tobacco. Now, tobacco comes to England in the early part of the 1600s, 1603, 1604. James is horrified. Ooh, disgusting. Tobacco. Writes a whole book about it. He writes a book called A Counterblast to Tobacco. He says... What honor or policy can move us to imitate the barbarous and beastly manners of the wild, godless, and slavish Indian, especially in so vile and stinking a custom? Nasty old tobacco. You shouldn't be smoking. He even talks about how already in 1600, take this, Philip Morris, already in 1600, he's talking about how people who smoke tobacco start coughing up black stuff out of their lungs and eventually die. This is in his book. You know, now doctors in the 1950s said smoking was good for you, but uh, James did. Well, guess what? Remember, we said the king had different sources of income. One of his sources of income that Parliament couldn't tamper with was imports, import duties, and what has become popular in England, but tobacco. And so, for the first time in recorded history, <laughs> the Tobacco money influences politics. James decides tobacco maybe isn't quite so bad because Parliament won't give him any money, and he's needing money, so he ups the import duties on tobacco, and uh, he stops talking about it so much in public. Something that will, uh, as we saw, happen again and again in the United States, uh, virtually controlling our government for many years, or certain portions of our government. First. Tobacco, right away, taking over the government. Another interesting thing happens. This is about 1612. Um, James, in one of his tolerant moments, decides to ban burning at the stake for heresy. He said, you know, we got, this has just been too terrible. I mean, it's too primitive. It's a vile and stinking custom to burn people at the stake for heresy. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to torture them and put them in prison for the rest of their life. But we're not going to burn them at the stake for heresy anymore, because that's just primitive. And the last two guys burned at the stake were guys named, a couple of guys, Bartholomew Leggett and Edward Reitman, who were seekers. They were part of that sectarian group we talked about. They weren't even separatists as much as they were just kind of nutballs. And uh, they believed, that they were part of a group that believed that um, the Roman church had corrupted everything, and the only people who could establish the church again were Jesus and his apostles, and they were going to wait for him. And so all the seekers were just, they wouldn't go to church, wouldn't have church service. They'd get together, and they'd do this. They would meet in silence. Even Quakers would wait for the Spirit. These guys were waiting for Jesus and the apostles. They wouldn't do anything. And they finally, as you can imagine, that got dull, so we stopped having church services. Roger Williams in the United States eventually became a seeker and then eventually uh, figured his way out of that. So seekers were around. Last two guys burned at the stake, a couple of seekers. So James is, uh, James has trouble with everybody, and he's not proving to be a particularly effective leader. And uh, his boyfriend, uh, his, his first major boyfriend that he had during this time period, has gotten on the outs with uh, Parliament, and so he's become a liability, and he drops him like a rock. 
And then we get a new guy entering the picture. And this guy is incredibly important, even though, unless you've read The Three Musketeers, you probably haven't heard of him. His name is George Villiers. And most of you, if you've heard of him at all, would have heard of him as the first Duke of Buckingham. George Villiers uh, is just a, one of these guys from a noble family who... Uh, comes into the court and catches the eye, I'm afraid, of James and begins to rise in prominence and influence. And uh, in addition to being James's new boyfriend, he develops the position, if you will, of basically chief advisor to the King of England. And because James was kind of incompetent when it came to ruling, George Villiers essentially became the king of England. He wasn't really, but he almost was. Uh, he really, really controlled uh, most of what was going on and most of the, the, the foreign affairs. There's a couple of other things that happened during this time period. This is uh, George Villiers comes to court about 1614. Uh, this is one to just hold in the back of your mind. 1618, James publishes a book called The Book of Sports. And what this book is, the Book of Sports basically tells people that what they should do on Sundays after church is go out and play. Go out and have a good time, have sporting events. It's a good thing to do on Sunday. This incenses the Puritans, because the Puritans, above all things, were really big on Sabbatarianism, or the observance of the Lord's Day, in a very, very strict way. And here you have James telling the whole country, not only is it not a sin to do this, I recommend it. Go out and do it. Have a good time. And makes the Puritan faction totally irate. Very, very upset with this. Just another thing. Kick in the shins. Anything he can do to annoy Puritans or hurt them. James thinks it up and does it. Book of Sports was one of them. Now things begin to get complicated overseas. We're going to go into uh, this next little section here is almost exclusively dealing with politics. But you'll see how important it is shortly. In 1619, uh, uh, James, there's a, there's a Protestant revolution in Bohemia. So we have to put some countries up here. We've got basically England, Scotland, Ireland in a group. We've got uh, Spain. We've got France. And then we've got kind of over here in Eastern Europe, we've got Bohemia. And then we've got the, uh, the Dutch up here. All these people are going to be players in what happens next. Get a hold of your scorecards, because this one, this one is wild. This one goes crazy here. Bohemia has a, re a revolt, and Protestants take over. And James's daughter and son-in-law become king and queen. So we have a Protestant kingdom here, and it's James's uh, children, for lack of a better word take over here. Spain becomes upset with the fact that Bohemia has become Protestant and says they're going to invade. So they had an army over this way. This makes Spain very unpopular in England. Spain, A, it's Roman Catholic. B, they're Spanish. And C, they're going to attack Bohemia. They're going to attack this Protestant kingdom and it's James's relative and we're mad about it. We're going to do something. 
And so there is a movement to do something about Spain. Well, the Duke of Buckingham comes out, George Villiers, comes out in favor of this and starts to push James that way. Except in this same year, the Duke of Buckingham, I guess the bisexual Duke of Buckingham, marries a Roman Catholic woman. Closet, crypto-Roman Catholic, but, but very much a Roman Catholic. And comes under the influence of the Spanish ambassador. So Buckingham now is listening to Spain. He comes up with this scheme as to what to do about this whole problem. Always with these schemes. We had these schemes last time, we got schemes again. James has a son. His son is named Charles, Prince of Wales. Buckingham has a scheme to have Charles marry the princess of Spain, in exchange for which Spain will lay off of Bohemia. This is the plan. Uh, but he hasn't gone public on it yet. It's a secret plan. Right now, there's going to be war with Spain. James calls Parliament. Parliament, he says, that we're going to need some money. We're going to have this continental war. It's going to be bad. We're going to need some money. Well, except then it kind of leaks out that in the midst of all this, Buckingham is fooling around with Spain, and maybe there isn't going to be any money for Bohemia. And maybe he's just asking for money. And maybe they think he has enough money already. And so they get irritated. Parliament gets mad, and they start investigating things. It's like Congress, you know. It's a special, a special council. So what do they decide to investigate? But Buckingham, we're going to take a look at this guy. Because Buckingham has become rich by selling patents and monopolies through his position. And a lot of his friends and relatives have become rich, too. So Buckingham, essentially, is the kind of thing where uh, it, this was one of the sources of, of royal income. You've got Buckingham, you've got his friends, particularly a guy by the name of Sir Francis Bacon. Most of you remember Sir Francis Bacon from school. He was a philosopher and somewhat of a scientist. These guys are selling royal patents, royal monopolies. Hey, you want to uh, control sheep farming in a certain area? Pay us the bucks and we'll give you a piece of paper that says you can do it. All, it, it just about anything that you could imagine they could sell rights to, they would sell rights to in exchange for some money. And they're getting rich and they're, and they're helping out their, their friends and their relatives. The Parliament says, you know what? This is wrong and we want to stop put to it. Uh-oh, Buckingham is a politician, above all things. He was a dandy, he was a, 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 a not a very good military leader, he was a, a, a nobleman, but he was a politician first. He understood how this game works. So what does Buckingham do, because now he's getting unpopular, because of this little deal with Spain. Buckingham says, you know what, this is a terrible thing, this, this people making money off of patents and royalties. And Buckingham rolls, he rolls over on his family and his friends, including Sir Francis Bacon, and he becomes the leader, the leader of this uh, part of this investigation into what's going on. Yeah, the guy, exactly. This guy's making all the money off of it. He gets himself put in as the leader of the investigation. Now, I've got to tell you the story of Sir Francis Bacon, because it goes, it's our second story of Some Things Never Change already had tobacco influence in politics. Check this out. Francis Bacon is the English Lord Chancellor. 
And uh, Parliament actually investigates and impeaches Francis Bacon for taking bribes in return for these uh, patents and royalties. Bacon says, you know what? He says, I'm going to tell the truth. I I did take money. But these weren't bribes. They were presents. And, And I want you to know, he said, none of these presents influenced my decision making. They didn't influence my decision making at all. They were gifts and and that's all they were. And I took the money and maybe I shouldn't have done that, but really I I was completely uh, fair in how I made my decisions. Parliament says, yeah, right, impeaches him, uh, uh, bars him from office, sends him to the tower and finds him a bunch of money. Buckingham, consummate politician that he is, knows that there's a limit to how far you can roll on your friends. So he gets James to pardon him. James issues a pardon. I know, it sounds like it happened yesterday. It actually probably did happen yesterday. So James pardons him, remits his fine, and uh, I guess everything works out for, for Francis Bacon. Well, Parliament's starting to get really, really hot at what's going on. And they hear about the plot of Buckingham to marry Charles to the, to the princess of Spain. And they say, no deal. This is not going to happen. These people are papists. They're Roman Catholics. We're not going to have that here. It's getting close enough to that already. Knock it off. And they pass something called... Well, James then gets upset and tells them they shouldn't be meddling in foreign affairs. They're parliament, and that's not their business. It's his business to regulate foreign affairs. So parliament passes the great protestation. The great protestation. It says this, among other things, that the liberties, franchises, privileges, and jurisdictions of Parliament are the ancient and undoubted birthright and inheritance of the subjects of England, and that the arduous and urgent affairs concerning the king, state, and defense of the realm are proper subjects and matter of counsel and debate in Parliament. In other words, wrong, king, we're Parliament, This stuff belongs to us, foreign affairs, foreign wars. Uh, You can't just call us up and ask for money. It's not going to work that way. We're parliament. We're going to run this country too. Oh, James gets mad, really, really mad. He goes to parliament. And there's a, just like in Congress, they, they, had a, they have, a, they have the, 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 the records of Congress, the official records. They had a huge book in which all of this stuff was written down. The great protestation is in there. It's written and it's signed. James goes to Parliament, publicly finds the page of the great protestation, and tears it out of the book. Tears it out of the book and throws it away. He cannot abide by Parliament acting this way. He dissolves Parliament, and he takes the leaders of Parliament and puts them in prison. Remember that fact. He's dissolved Parliament, and now he has imprisoned the leaders of Parliament. He, he, he's not going to have, they're, they're not going to have this kind of deal. It's going to be James or nobody. And, back to Buckingham. Buckingham still has the plan. The man with the plan. He's going to go to Spain with Charles. They're going to marry Princess of Spain. Going to get him to back off on Bohemia. And he'll, he thinks he'll be the hero if he can get him to back off on Bohemia. 
Well, as we've already seen, this was a very, very unpopular plan. So Buckingham and Charles sneak out of the country. They sneak out of the country disguised as Mr. Smith and Mr. Brown. I'm not kidding. (laughs) Mr. Smith and Mr. Brown on a trip to Spain. (laughs) Going to Spain. Sightseeing. Check it out. See what they got down there. Heard it's nice. So they meet with these Spanish negotiators. The Spanish negotiators are expecting Buckingham and Charles to publicly become Roman Catholic. That's basically their condition. Buckingham isn't sure he wants any part of that. He wants them to, by this time they've overthrown, Spain has overthrown uh, these folks. They want them to return Bohemia to James's son-in-law. And Buckingham, like every politician, had a gigantic ego. It's just one of the facts of life about Buckingham. And he gets into a, a contest, if you will, over who the bigger dog is with these Spanish negotiators. Is it Buckingham or is it the Spanish negotiators? Who's more important? Who's going to carry the day? Who's going to get listened to? And the plan falls through. No deal. Buckingham is mad. He goes back to England. Remember I said you needed a scorecard to keep track of the uh, alliances? And Buckingham says, the Spanish... They are rotten, stinking scoundrels. In fact, in fact, we should declare war on them because they won't give us Bohemia back to James's son-in-law. And Buckingham becomes wildly popular again because anti-Spanish sentiment is high. Only James didn't really want him to do that because James was still trying to kind of work some sort of deal with Spain. Buckingham and Charles, James's son more or less coerced James into breaking off any sort of contact with Spain. So, uh, Buckingham's agitating for war. James doesn't have any money. Why do we have to, when we want to have a war? We have to call Parliament. Where are the leaders of Parliament? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Oops. So we call Parliament, we say, uh, sorry guys, but we're, we're going we're gonna to go to war with Spain, and you guys like that kind of thing. It's going to be a good deal. Well, Parliament is, they're amenable to having a, uh, like a seafaring war with Spain, and they're willing to send some money to Bohemia, but James thinks it's going to take more. James thinks it's going to take an alliance with France to carry on a war with Spain and to get Bohemia back. And Parliament doesn't want any part of that because France is Roman Catholic. And at this very moment, France is killing off Protestants. Okay, so we're going to go over here and we're going to restore Protestantism with the help of France who is killing all the Protestants. Parliament says, you know, that's a stupid idea. And, and uh, we're not sure we're interested in that. Meanwhile... Buckingham, man with a plan, is negotiating with the French for Charles to marry the princess, or actually, I'm sorry, the, the, the sister of Louis XIII. Louis XIII is king over here. We're going to marry him off here. This is going to be the deal. Meanwhile, James has promised the king of France that he's going to send him three ships. He's going to send her three fleets to come over here and help crush Protestantism. Okay. So, very tricky situation. Um, 
James wants an alliance with France. Uh, he's promised to send these ships. Buckingham's trying to marry off Charles again. He's trying to get war for Spain. Parliament is, is, is not having any of it. Right in the middle of all this, James dies. <coughs> gone. James is gone. Charles becomes king. Charles I is crowned. <laughs> there probably would have been. There would have been. I haven't found the Middle East connection yet. So Charles becomes king. Charles is fully committed to this whole thing, the whole plan. He's, he's with Buckingham. They're going to do it. Only Buckingham now realizes they have a big problem, which is that Parliament is against the plan uh, unless he can get France to lay off of the Protestants. The Protestants, which James has already committed three ships to France to crush. Buckingham heads for France. We've got to figure out what we're going to do here. Buckingham is a politician, confident of his own abilities. He thinks he can mediate peace. He's like Colin Powell. He's going to have peace between the Huguenot and the French uh, uh, royalty here, Protestants and the Catholics. This will clear the way for, uh, if there's peace there, then they can get Parliament to give them the money to fight Spain and Bohemia. While he's there, these ships show up and start attacking the Protestants under the French command. This is in a place called La Rochelle. It was the last Huguenot stronghold. Also, uh, while he's there, he has an affair with the Queen of France, which figures prominently in uh, The Three Musketeers, if you've ever read that book. This is the Duke of Buckingham who's having a secret affair that they're trying to pass the notes between and not have everybody get caught. So he's a busy guy. He's having an affair with the Queen of France. He's going to mediate peace. These ships are showing up. Uh-oh. Can't do it. Just like Colin Powell, peace talks fail. Back he goes to England. Meanwhile, Parliament has heard about the three ships showing up to crush the Protestants. They say, you know what? First of all, you're not getting any money. Second of all, we want this Buckingham guy out of here. No more Buckingham. We're tired of it. Uh, Charles says, Buckingham's my pal. Dissolves Parliament. <laughs> but Spain uh, is by now getting upset in fact Spain is threatening to attack England uh oh okay we gotta have some money what are we gonna do we've committed all over the place oh meanwhile Charles goes ahead and marries uh, the, the, the uh, sister of the queen here so Charles marries the Roman Catholic uh, or, sister of the king. Sister of the king, yeah. Charles marries the, the, the Roman Catholic uh, uh, sister there. So what are we going to do? We, got, we don't have any money. We've got to figure out some way to come up with money. So we're going to get ugly. First thing we're going to do is we're going to try, we're going to force people to give us loans. That's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to go to the people in Parliament, a lot of like the House of Lords and a lot of these noble guys that have money, and we're going to say, you know what? You're going to give us money or we're going to hurt you. And that's exactly what they did. And if you didn't give him money, you got sent to prison. So now they're sending more people from Parliament to prison because they, they're trying to get money out of them. They say, we've got to do something about these troops are getting expensive. I know. Let's have them live in people's houses 
So just like the English did in America, which is part of the, the cause of the Revolutionary War, they started quartering the English troops in people's houses. And you couldn't refuse. I mean, hi, we're the military. We're here to live. And uh, when's dinner? <laughs> That's basically how that worked. This is get, making people mad. Still not enough money, though. So Buckingham, he's a man off the plan. He goes to Holland to pawn the crown jewels. The crown jewels of the king of England. He pawns them in Amsterdam for some money to wage a campaign in Bohemia, uh, which turns out to be a complete disaster. 12,000 12, men to Bohemia, most of them starve and die because they didn't have the money to support them, never really, never really get to Bohemia. Um, the uh, the Spain is threatening war. Uh, as part of this attack on Bohemia and Spain, they started seizing Spanish ships to raise money, treasure ships. We'll just take the Spanish ships, piracy. While we're at it, we'll take some French ships too, because after all, they were transporting goods to Spain, and that's helping our enemy, so we'll take their ships too. France says, no, you won't, and they get ready to declare war on England. Nobody has any money. The, these, the war is being declared. King has to call Parliament. 1626, he calls Parliament. He doesn't have any money. What are we going to do? i got to get some money from somebody. Uh, they say, you know what? Get rid of this Buckingham guy. We'll give you some money. He says, I can't do that. He's my friend. He dissolves Parliament. Buckingham now is going to try one last time. He's getting ready to... He sails for La Rochelle, this time to save the Protestants. He's going to take a fleet of ships. He's going to go in. He's going to save the Protestants. He attacks this island. Loses 50% of his troops. Uh, an island fort. Loses 50% of his troops. Comes back disgraced. <coughs> we don't have any money. What are we going to do? Call Parliament. 1628. Calls Parliament. Parliament says, this is it, right here. Peti they pass something called the Petition of Rights. They say, you want any money from us, here's how it's going to be. No taxes, without, no taxes without our consent. No one imprisoned without cause. No soldiers quartered on the, on the people. And no martial law in peacetime. And you know what? You're going to get rid of Buckingham. Because we're tired of this. First time he sends him an answer, he says, I don't think so. Maybe I'll do some of that. They say, no good. All or nothing. He sends him a second answer, agreeing to the petition of rights, but he still won't get rid of Buckingham. Parliament declares Buckingham a public enemy. Quote, public enemy. That means it's open season on the Duke of Buckingham. Charles says, you know, Buckingham's my friend. He dissolves Parliament. But by this point, it is too late. Tracts are circulating, advocating the murder of Buckingham. Uh, they kill on the street. He's got this, Buckingham had this advisor who was kind of a quack doctor and an astrologer. They kill this guy on the street. And finally, we get the classic, the, the classic disgruntled, deranged, uh, nobody assassin type. It's a guy named John Felton. John Felton 
was a, a naval man who had sailed on this voyage to La Rochelle. John Fenton had not been paid. John Fenton had not been promoted. And John Fenton, so he was already mad at Buckingham, uh, John Felton, I should say. John Felton had not been paid or promoted. And now Parliament says he's public enemy number one. John Felton takes a knife, goes to Buckingham's house, and while he's getting ready to eat his uh, brunch, stabs him to death because he believes he'll become a, some kind of hero of the people if he does it. Buckingham is killed. La Rochelle falls to the French. The Huguenots uh, are, are basically broken in their influence. So Buckingham is gone. James is gone. Buckingham is gone. All, uh, uh, Charles is forced to make peace with France and with Spain and uh, turns his view towards domestic policy, if you will. And we have the rise of our fourth character, uh, the final act in tonight's drama, a man by the name of William Laud. Uh, Charles calls one more parliament, 1629. They condemn, pass a resolution condemning unauthorized taxation. It won't give him any money. He says, I've had it with parliament. There will not be another parliament for 11 years. We're in 1629 now. There will not be another parliament until 1640. And we'll, we'll see why when we get there. He turns his attention back towards those nasty, rotten little Puritans, many of whom were part of Parliament, many of whom were part of this problem that was being caused to him, that wouldn't give him any money, that kept telling him he had to, he had to consent to all kinds of things, and who were still causing trouble in the church. And he appoints a man to be Archbishop of Canterbury named William Laud. That's L-A-U-D. Let me give you a description, one author's, of William Laud. Of all the prelates of the Anglican Church, Laud had departed furthest from the principles of the Reformation and drawn nearest to Rome. His theology was more remote than that of the Dutch Arminians from the theology of the Calvinists. His passion for ceremonies, reverence for holy days, vigils, sacred places, his ill-concealed dislike for the marriage of ecclesiastics, the ardent and not altogether disinterested zeal with which he asserted the claims of the clergy to the reverence of the laity, made him an object of aversion to the Puritans. He was by nature rash, irritable, quick to feel his own dignity, slow to sympathize with the suffering of others, and prone to the error of making his own peevish and malignant moods for emotions of pious zeal. Under his direction, every corner of the realm was subjected to a constant and minute inspection. Every congregation of separatists was tracked down and broken up. Even the devotion of private families could not escape the vigilance of his spies. Laud is going to have a crackdown, a religious crackdown. Think China, okay? Think China. He sends agents throughout the entire country to go to every church and see where if there's any Puritan ministers hiding out. He has spies on the street to see if there are any congregations meeting in secret like Baptists or Separatists or any of those other vicious and terrible and horrible cults that should be exterminated from the face of the earth. He stops all the Puritan lectures. They used to have these like Bible lectures in the afternoon that weren't really church services. Puts a stop to those. Reissues the book of sports just to irritate them. He, he, 
He tried to, there were Dutch and French refugees in the country. He tried to force them to become part of the Church of England or be taxed at twice the rate of everyone else. He, he brought in something called the etc. oath. Get this. This is the etc. oath. All kinds of people were, were required to swear this oath. It was an oath of allegiance, quote, to the government of this church by archbishops, bishops, deans, and archdeacons, etc. Basically, anything Archbishop Laud wanted was what you had to come up with. Now, what happens if you didn't go with Archbishop Laud's plan? Let me tell you what happens. The Archbishop Laud had two tools. He had something called the Court of High Commission, which was... uh, The Court of High Commission was the Archbishop's Court. This was a court that goes back to the time of Henry VIII that was given the power to... It was, it was to, to um, enforce uniformity in the Church of England, in, in ceremonial uniformity. And it could actually dish out punishments on ministers and things like that for not going with the program. And he had a terrible, terrible place called the Star Chamber. The Star Chamber was a royal court uh, that also dated back, I think, probably at least 200 years, 300 years at this point. The Star Chamber was called the Star Chamber because there were stars on the ceiling, painted on the ceiling. The Star Chamber, these two places uh, are about to become legendary to the point where the term Star Chamber is, is the kind of, uh, is even used today for, for a kind of inquisitorial court. Let me tell you what, what Laud would do to you. I'll give you two examples. A guy named Alexander Layton. He was a doctor and a Puritan. He wrote a, he wrote a little book called An Appeal to Parliament, or Zion's Plea Against Prelacy. Prelacy was the Episcopal form of government. Laud had him hauled before the Court of High Commission. They fined him 10,000 pounds. They set him two times in the pillory and whipped him. They cut off his ears. They slit his nose open. And they branded him on the face with the letters SS, for sower of sedition. And they gave him life in prison. That's the Court of High Commission. Star Chamber's even better. Star Chamber, remember, we're not going to burn heretics anymore. Burning of heretics. Star Chamber, by other example, guy by the name of William Prynne. William Prynne was one of these kind of gadfly types who managed to irritate just about everyone at one time or another. William Prynne wrote a book attacking Arminian doctrine. Remember that Laud was practically a Catholic. He was so far Arminian, he was almost a Catholic. Uh, This irritates Laud that he writes this book. But then he does something even worse. He writes a book against stage plays. Now the king and Puritans were all down on stage plays. The king and queen of England were big fans of stage plays. And in this book, he, he makes this kind of off-handed remark that was taken as a slander of the Queen of England. Big, big mistake. Prince is hauled into the Star Chamber. He's fined 5,000 pounds. He is expelled from the University of Oxford and the Society of Lincoln's Inn. Prynne was a lawyer. He had his law license revoked. You're thinking, yeah, and get to the point. He is put twice in the pillory and whipped. He has both his ears cut off, and he's uh, sent to prison forever. In prison, he manages to write another book. Because this guy will not give up. 
Prin is a survivor. He has his ears sewn back on after they cut him off. And he writes another book. They haul him back in front of the star chamber. They sentence him to have his ears cut off again, to stand in the uh, uh, pillory, and to be branded on both cheeks with the letters SL for schismatical libeler. These are just two examples. There are so, so many. It was a horrible time. Uh, Puritans started getting out of the country, going to Holland, going to America. They called it the Great Migration. There were so many people running from Archbishop Laud. Archbishop Laud would hunt you down. This man meant business. When these people knocked on your door in the middle of the night, it was over. It was absolutely over for you. Uh, famous congregation, we're going to talk about them a little bit next week. The, uh, um, it's, uh, let me see if I can remember it. It's the uh, Lathrop Jesse congregation, but there's another guy's name in the front of it. It was an independent congregation that, that became the beginning of the particular Baptist movement in England. In 1632, I just want you to think about this. Lathrop's congregation, which was proto-Baptist, it wasn't quite Baptist, but they would have believed just about everything that we believe except for uh, baptism. Lathrop's congregation was discovered. This is the kind of thing that happened when you were caught in the congregation. And this was early on before Laud got really severe. The members of the congregation were sent to prison for 18 months. All of them. 18 months in prison. Lathrop and his elders were imprisoned for two years and fined. This stuff hadn't really kicked in yet, which is why they weren't being branded and having their ears cut off and their nose slit. Now, just ask yourself, would you be willing to go to prison for a year and a half, for a year and a half, as the consequence of doing what we're doing right here, right now? How much does it mean to you? Would you be willing to go to prison for a year and a half to, to, to attend church here? Or, be, or because you believe in it? Laud pretty much drives all of Puritanism underground. But of course, when anything goes underground, what does it do? It explodes. It absolutely, everything is, is going crazy. Parliament by now, as you can imagine, is in a complete uproar when they get to meet, which of course they're not meeting. But all these guys that would normally be in Parliament, the ones that aren't in prison, are, extru- are just going insane. Um, the Puritan, whole Puritan faction. Charles might have pulled this off, but he and Laud picked on the one group of people that the English never could learn not to pick on. They decide to go after Scotland. Scotland has a Reformed church, Presbyterian church. Uh, These people, they are dead serious. Under Charles II, they would suffer so incredibly. uh, It's just unbelievable how badly they would suffer and they would remain faithful. These people were serious. Laud has this idea that he's going to force, he's going to wipe out, he's had it. He hates Presbyterians, he hates Puritans, he doesn't, he doesn't like them being just north of the border. There's people up there that are fomenting this activity in England. We're going to put a stop to it. James, uh, or Charles, you're, you're, the, you're the essentially descended from the monarch of Scotland, you're the monarch of Scotland too. Let's knock this off. So they go into Scotland. 
And they tell him, okay, here's how it's going to be. No more Presbyterianism. It's episcopacy for you from now on. No more Presbyterian worship services. It's the Book of Common Prayer and, and all of our ceremonies. In the extreme, you're gonna, you're, this is what you're going to do. No ifs, ands, or buts. The Scots say, is that right? And they get together, and they do this thing that they always keep doing. They have a national covenant. A national covenant is where a bunch of people get together and swear essentially to uh, uphold the law of God and Presbyterian government. And they say, we're not going for this. And they raise, they have a, they, they, they have the general assembly of the church gets together, swears the national covenant, parliament gets together. Uh, here's what the general, the, uh, the general assembly does. The, uh, actually, actually I'm skipping ahead a little bit. So they, they, they say, we're not going to do this. But before they exactly say that, they invite Charles to the meeting of the General Assembly. Now, Charles has already, he's, he's deposed all of the, he, he's instituted these changes. They have taken place uh, as well as he could get away with it. But the church says, is really resisting. So they, they call a General Assembly and they invite Charles. And Charles comes for the General Assembly. And here's what they do right in front of Charles at the General Assembly. The General Assembly votes to depose all the bishops. That, that Charles and William Laud had put in place in the Scottish Church. They abolished the prayer book and they call it, quote, heathenish, popish, Jewish, and Arminian. And they declare that they've taken the National Covenant, that they're going to restore Presbyterian government and reform doctrine, and Charles can put it wherever he likes. Charles says all those decisions are, are invalid. They say, is that right? They take an army... They seize Edinburgh Castle. Charles doesn't have an army. Charles doesn't have any money. Because Charles hasn't had Parliament since 1629, and we're now in 1638. He's not getting any money. He has no way to fight the Scots. Without even a battle, he goes to this place called Berwick and signs a treaty in which he says, Okay, you can have free assembly and you can have a free parliament. Just calm down. They sign the treaty. They say, that's great. The general assembly meets, promptly swear the national covenant again, and prepare for war with England. What are we going to do now? Call parliament. He calls parliament. It's called the short parliament. It is called the short parliament because they said, thanks for calling us, and before we give you any money, we've got a number of issues we'd like to take up with you. And he says, forget it, and he dissolves parliament. <laughs> parliament is dissolved. Scotland invades England. I told you these people mean business. You do not mess with their church and their church government and their doctrine. Uh, there's a famous story, I believe it was under, in this time when they instituted the Book of Common Prayer of a woman named Jenny Geddes, who was this old woman. And they, and they showed up, the, the Episcopal priest showed up, you know, they replaced the minister, showed up at church, so all the little good Presbyterians came to church. This old lady, and this guy gets up and he starts to read the Book of Common Prayer. She picks up a stool and throws it at his head and says, 
something to the effect of, will you read the mass at me? You know, and, and, and it basically attacks the guy with a stool. Very serious people declare war on England. They march into England. They occupy Newcastle and Durham. And these guys, they're looking good. They're ready to go. Charles doesn't have an army. He, he got rid of Parliament again. So, Charles signs the Treaty of, it's called the Treaty of Ripon or Ripon. And it gets even better. The first time, he just agreed that they could have their church back. This time, he agrees that he will pay them money every single day in exchange for their not attacking England anymore. <laughs> One big holdup. He doesn't have any money. Here we go. It's 1640. Charles... I can't imagine what the guy must have felt like at this point in time. Uh, Carl's Parliament. He lets them all out of prison. He calls Parliament. He says, guys, we're in trouble here. You know, the Scots, and i got to have some money. Well, this one is not called the short Parliament. This one is called the long Parliament. Because the long Parliament is going to last for eight straight years. And... The, long par- the calling of the long parliament, Charles's desperate, uh, desperate act to try to head off uh, a disaster with Scotland, raised some money, calls the long parliament. Parliament this time has really had it. They're not listening to the king anymore. And the calling of the long parliament is in essence the beginning of the English Civil War. And that's what we're going to then cover next week uh, is these... Basically, these eight years of 1640 to 1648. This is when the Westminster Assembly takes place. This is when uh, the English Civil War takes place. This is when Oliver Cromwell emerges. This is when uh, uh, all so many important things happen. This is we are now just on the cusp of the Westminster Assembly and and the production of the uh, the remarkable documents uh, that came from that group. So. I will leave you with that uh, for this week.